Thank you very much. I'm really honored to be here. This is really incredibly thrilling. Um, I've, I've actually given a lot of lectures, but never quite like this. I'm, I'm not sure that I've ever been to a place where the entire institution showed up for what I had to say. <laughs> and at all these other places where much less than the entire institution showed up to, 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 to hear what I had to say, uh, it was just unequivocally the case that they were not dressed as well as you are. This is the best dressed audience I've ever uh, spoken to, I think. And, um, and this task is actually daunting for another reason. I listened to the uh, audio of Joe Bassett. Joe and I went to grad school together at the University of Chicago. And as you heard, we worked on some projects together subsequently. And uh, I listened to his audio of last year's lecture, and it really sets a high bar. Um, and so I will try to, I'll try to meet it. Um, and to kick it right off, let me remind you that last year, in the course of Joe's talk, he referred to a book that had been written uh, after the Vietnam era, at, at the end of the Vietnam era, uh, around the Nixon presidency by Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called The Imperial Presidency. And that book then had argued that the president was too strong. And because presidents today uh, have considerably more tools at their disposal, seemingly, than even during the Nixon era, tools that allow them to exercise unilateral powers to decide uh, appointments on their own, recess appointments, for example, to issue executive orders in, the place, of, in place of legislation, uh, to make executive agreements instead of treaties, to keep information to themselves rather than sharing it with the Congress, uh, and a whole host of other actions that presidents uh, can take on their own that allow them to have, uh, in, uh, and this is not just the current president, but recent presidents, uh, principal control of the foreign policy of the United States, the ability to send the country uh, to war, uh, and uh, principal responsibility seemingly for fashioning the budget of the United States, and principal responsibility for staffing the government of the United States. When you put all that together, it raises the question, is the presidency too strong? And a number of books have answered that question with an unequivocal yes. There's a book by, recent book by Bruce Ackerman, a Yale Law professor, called The Rise and Fall of the American Republic. Its principal thesis is the president is out of control. And there's a book by a uh, young man named Andrew Rudolevage called The New Imperial Presidency. So it's reflections like those that prompt our question tonight, is the president too strong? And I'm not going to, uh, uh, I'm not going to do the normal thing that you would expect one to do, which is to hold you in suspense for the answer to that question, but rather I'm gonna give it to you right up front and then uh, try to give an account of how we can best see why uh, this is so. And the answer right up front is no, the president isn't too strong. Um, but the problems that seem to prompt people to think that the president is too strong are real problems, which is to say it is a problem that the president is doing all of these things on his own. But that problem stems from not his strength but the weakness or abdication, the constitutional irresponsibility uh, 
of the legislative branch. Um, so I'm going to try to uh, prosecute that argument with you tonight. And the way that I propose to do that is I'm going to read a little bit just uh, uh, of a standard lecture variety just for a few minutes to set the table and to make the problem that I just sketched uh, a little bit more concrete and a little bit more nuanced. Um, and then I'm going to talk about some uh, three contemporary examples of this issue. And then I'm going to take you back to uh, an alternative account of what a healthy polity would look like and to build that account of health that against which we can measure today's decay into congressional abdication. My principal reliance will be on the Federalist Papers, which I'm told is among the texts that you read in your junior or senior year here. Now, it won't be necessary that you've actually read it to understand what I have to say, but for those of you that have, it may be helpful to you, and those that you haven't maybe uh, will have some things uh, to take away when you, when you do. Um, so the punchline is not going to be, no, the president uh, isn't too strong. The punchline is that the great books are the answer to the problem of contemporary politics. And so I'm going to try and show you how a recourse to the Federalist Papers uh, is actually the necessary antidote. A recourse to the kind of thinking represented by the Federalist Papers is the kind of antidote to the problem represented by congressional abdication, which looks to us today like presidential uh, imperialism. So first, to start with a well-known uh, uh, quotation that most of you will have known even from high school from the Federalist Papers, number 51, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The interest of the man must be connected with the constitutional rights of the place. In this singular insight, James Madison revealed the distinctive design of the American governmental order. This was the stunning conclusion of his new science of politics, that the core of governance could be a dynamic agonism, a perpetual conflict between institutions crafted to meet the multiple needs of a democratic people fueled by the ordinary attributes of human nature. By tethering the ordinary ambitions of politicians to the constitutional responsibilities of the branches where they worked, a well-designed constitutional order would not need to make politicians virtuous in order to make government effective and responsible. Responsibility could be made a byproduct of man-made institutions rather than an attribute of the inculcation of human beings remade. And so what I want to do tonight is to talk about the decay of this idea, uh, the decay of this idea of a kind of intentional constitutional agonism, and to suggest that this decay of this notion of conflict or agonism is the core problem of American politics today. Because since the end of World War II, American politics has increasingly been marked by the absence of constitutionally induced conflict and by the severing of institutional ambition from the constitutional duties of Congress and the presidency. It is common today for Congress to defer to the president and for the Congress and the president together to defer to the court regarding the custody of their constitutional responsibilities. A regime of robust constitutional contestation 
has become one of debilitating institutional abdication. A culture of articulate constitutional rhetoric has been replaced by a debased discourse of political incomprehension. The underlying idea here is that there's too little engagement and contestation, too little conflict between Congress and the president. Now, um, I'm sure if we had rushed to the question and answer period, there'd be a lot of hands up now. Uh, because I think, rightly, most people, uh, or I should say understandably, most people think the problem is just the reverse, that we have too much conflict today. And the experience of the Obama, Obama administration gives a lot of credence uh, to this view, where every initiative is contested, partisanship and polarization are manifest, political rhetoric is heated, and to say the least, usually often not enlightening. But the contemporary Congress's aggressiveness on the budget, on Supreme Court appointments to some degree, on the recent Secretary of Defense uh, uh, nomination, on the war of, on Libya for, to some degree, are actually exceptions to the norm since World War II. And this conflict, this polarized situation that we see in Washington today, uh, and the partisanship that fuels the conflict, uh, uh, is, operates, as it were, in the shadow of a deferential era. Uh, since the unpleasantness of it all is partly the result that congressmen are out of practice, the older norms that govern those practices have withered. So there, is there often is not congressional conflict. There's often abdication, even today. And when Congress conflict reemerges, it reemerges in this perverted form. So decay captures this development better than death or failure because the constitutional order still works fitfully and periodically. We get this agonism uh, as originally designed and also because the problem is much worse for Congress than it is for the presidency. That is to say it's Congress that abdicates more than the president. In a sense, the decayed polity lies on top of the functioning remnant of the original constitutional design, complicating and compounding the problem rather than merely covering it over. So what I'm gonna do for the rest of the uh, 45 minutes or so is to defend this idea of constitutional decay, first by sketching three different kinds of abdication, and I'm, not, I'm gonna be reading less and talking to you more. Uh, and then after those brief sketches, I'll get to the important task, which is, well, what would health look like? And what was the, what was the theory that underlie, underlie the, underlies the notion that it'd be good to have some kind of conflict built into the Constitution? Uh, and that's the turn to the Federalist Papers. And I'll try to illustrate how that Federalist paper idea actually worked with a couple of 19th century examples that you can uh, grasp to contrast with these three 20th century examples that I'm going to start with. So example one, which I call forbearance, and I call it forbearance because it's an example of Congress having power at, at its disposal and, dis, and deciding not to use it, holding back on using the power or uh, exercising the responsibility that it has. And the example here is the Senate's confirmation of Supreme Court nominations. 
Now, originally in the Constitutional Convention, this, uh, this uh, appointment power for Supreme Court and selection of Supreme Court justices was wholly given to the Senate, but after a long debate, it was decided to share that power between the President and the Senate um, for a number of reasons having to do with the virtues of the presidency in focusing choice and the virtues of the Senate in deliberating on choice. So in the 19th century, presidents did nominate, as they do today, um, <clears throat> candidates for the Supreme Court, and one out of every three was turned down by 19th century senates. In the 20th century, our century, uh, nine of every 10 are appointed. So only one of every 10 uh, are turned down or, or decide not to, uh, uh, not to stay in the process. Uh, in the 19th century, Congresses were so active, aggressive, engaged in the process that even the House decided that it might uh, make suggestions to Abraham Lincoln as to who he might nominate. And they made intelligent suggestions, and Lincoln thanked them for them and acted on them and nominated the, some uh, candidates that had been suggested by the House. Uh, and uh, Andrew Johnson, his successor, had every single one of his nominations turned down by the Senate, who were so displeased with the character of the administration that chose them and with the choices that Andrew Johnson made, that they also took the seats away from the Supreme Court so that he couldn't nominate anybody else uh, after he had gotten his nominees turned down. And then they returned the seats to the Supreme Court when the next president came in. Uh, now, in the 19th century, when the Senate was deciding, do we like these presidential nominees or do we not like them, and they were turning down every third one, they took into consideration the full range of ideas and concerns that went through or in principle could go through the president's head when he decided who he wanted to nominate. So when presidents decide who they want to nominate, what do they think about? They think maybe, do I need somebody from a certain region? Does the person share my political views? Does the person share my jurisprudential views? What is their constitutional philosophy? Do they represent some demographic I think should be on the court? Uh, a religion, an ethnicity, a gender? Um, do, they, uh, do they balance the people that are already on the court? Or do they help imbalance the court in the way I'd like the court to go? All those kinds of things obviously go through the head of a president. And in the 19th century, they went through the heads of senators. So there was a kind of symmetry between the considerations on the part of the Senate and the considerations on the president. Today, what do we have? Today, we have a president who still makes his judgment on the full range of considerations that presidents in the 19th century did. But we have a Congress that has felt limited in its ability to judge the president's nominations to only uh, two or three narrow considerations. Gross incompetence, so incompetent that you can't get a minimal recommendation from the ABA or something like that. Carswell uh, in the, uh, in the uh, Nixon administration is an example of that and some alleged that Harriet Myers was an example of that in the, uh, in the uh, 
Bush administration, uh, or um, sexual or financial or some other moral impropriety, smoke and dope, or, uh, uh, or being accused of sexual harassment or something like that. These are the narrow considerations in which the Senate feels it can justifiably turn down presidents, but if it's a matter of judicial philosophy or political view, well, that's the president's decision because he was elected and so forth. That's a gross abdication of con congressional responsibility, which is not to say that, that senators should turn down nominees uh, uh, just because presidents nominate them, or that they should turn down nominees in every instance in which they disagree with the president's choice, but they should be fully vetting these nominees with respect to the full range of considerations that the president themselves has in making the nomination in the first place. Now this I find a truly interesting development because it has the effect of reversing a core theoretical animating uh, attribute of a modern uh, constitution, a modern liberal democratic constitution like the United States Constitution. A constitution like ours trades on the notion that while hypocrisy is a defect of individual character, so that in many of your books uh, that have dealt with ethics, I'm sure that you've already been taught that if your friend's a hypocrite, you gotta either help them repair their character or get a new friend. The insight of political theory, however, is to suggest that uh, a defect of institutional character could be made an absolute triumph of, uh, of individual character could make, be made a triumph of institutional design if in fact we can induce hypocrisy on the part of our political officers. All that means is if we can get, if we can get the office holders in our government to say the right things and feel compelled to act on what they say, it doesn't really matter whether they believe what they say. This is the insight of modern liberal constitutionalism that doesn't depend on virtue for its success. It depends on institutional uh, structures designed to orient interest in a way that we get the right thing, whatever the motives of the uh, politicians are. So that's the principle of hypocrisy. That's why hypocrisy is a good thing if you're looking at institutions, even if it's a bad thing if you're looking at individuals in social life. So what's so striking about the Senate forbearance example is that it reverses the hypocrisy principle. Today, senators have to find a bad reason to turn down, or one might say a low reason to turn down a presidential nominee as an excuse or cover for the high-minded reason that they actually have. So for example, if you disagree with the president's judicial philosophy, a perfectly legitimate thing to do, instead of making that the basis of your argument, you send some detectives out to find out what they did uh, at a party in law school. You follow, what, follow what I'm saying? All right, that's the reversal of the hypocrisy principle, where the bad reason is the one you search for to cover the good. Now there is one exception before I pass on to the next 
the next example. There's one exception to the story I've just told in our recent history, and that's the nomination of Robert Bork, who, as you know, was turned down, and about whom the full range of arguments, high and low, were mustered on his behalf and against him in a very vigorous Senate debate. Just the sort of thing you would have had in the 19th century. So that's an exception to what I've just said happens in current uh, circumstances. But it's an exception that proves the rule. It's an exception that proves the rule because since the Bork nomination, everybody says we don't want to do that again. They should be saying we do want to do that again, but they don't. And as some of you may know, his name Bork has become a verb. Um, so nobody wants to be borked. Um, all right, second example uh, I call pre-commitment. And uh, the example that I want to just sketch briefly is how budget politics is conducted today, or at least an example of how we're th uh, thinking about budget politics. And what I find interesting about this example is on the surface it appears to be uh, an attempt to um, uh, be responsible that on deeper look uh, turns out to be not. Uh, and the notion pre-commitment goes all the way back to Greek mythology. Those that have, you have read um, Ulysses uh, know, this, know the, uh, the uh, myth of Ulysses and the Sirens. So anybody know this myth? Then I'm going to tell you. All right, Ulysses, all right. So we're just going to go through it quickly since you know it. Ulysses, Ulysses uh, uh, is, a, is a captain of a ship, and, uh, and there are these sirens that are like uh, mermaid, beautiful women mermaid characters that when ships pass these sirens, uh, the sailors jump off the ships swimming to these figures and always die. Knowing this, Ulysses says... Uh, all you sailors, plug your ears so you can still sail the ship and you can't hear these sirens and you won't jump over and swim to these women-like characters, but bind me to the mast so that I can see everything that's going on, but I won't be able to kill myself. <laughs> if it had been me, I would have taken a different route, but that's what he decides, all right? That's the, uh, I want to hear the stuff, bind me. And that's become a paradigmatic instance of pre-commitment, which is to say that Ulysses has diagnosed his own pathology, that is the pathology of guys, to jump after women, and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and he's going he's gonna to hold himself back. He's going to know in advance. And there are lots of examples in modern life of this, people that do things knowing that they want to break their habit of smoking and they make some advanced arrangements knowing that of their own uh, their own weakness, weakness of will. Well, that metaphor has been the animating engine of attempts to contend with the fact that Congress has diagnosed its own pathology on the budget, that it seems institutionally incapable of appropriating money and establishing a responsible budget at the same time. It always appropriates more money than a responsible budget would uh, justify. Uh, and, in, and, and so to contend with that, Congress has decided over a series of examples, the first one being the Graham-Rudman-Hollings Act, but also captured in the balanced budget amendments and in the current sequestration uh, politics that, we're that we are in the midst of this week. In all of these instances, 
The idea is that we're going to say in advance that um, we're a sick institution and we need to figure out a way to force ourselves to do the right thing. Uh, and the way we will do that is we will set some budget ceiling in the case of Graham Rudman's uh, and if we exceed that ceiling, uh, we will have set in motion a law that says that we will cut the budget uh, by a certain amount so as to bring it down across the board on every budget item across the whole U.S. budget under uh, the ceiling that we had established, despite the fact that we can't uh, 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 do it ourselves. So some, fi some figure in the executive branch or some independent agency, somebody will cut the budget in the Grand Rubin Hullings bill, which was declared at one point unconstitutional, and in balanced budget amendments, and uh, in the current sequestration, which as you know was a deal that said we've got to get a long-term deficit program by March 1st, <clears throat> otherwise the budget gets cut across the board to bring it down under a certain target. Well, in a certain sense, that seems like an act of responsibility because it says, look, we have been incapable of dealing with the budget issue, that is, the amount of money being spent. Um, <clears throat> and therefore, we've taken into account, we've diagnosed our own pathology and made advanced arrangements to solve it. The problem is, and we see this in the current situation, is that Congress's responsibility is not only to make a budget, it's to budget, which is to say to make the priority choices between what's important and what's not. And in setting up this mechanism, they provide for the answer to one failure, which is to get a responsible total number, but they don't, they don't provide for an advanced solution to the other failure, which is to make responsible budgetary priority choices. In contrast, for example, to the military base closing sort of legislation, which is a similar pre-commitment problem where the military says, you know, we can never close the bases uh, when we do it in normal uh, politics because we all like the bases in our, in our districts, even though it might be responsible to shut some of them down. So they establish a commission that doesn't just cut a few soldiers from every base, but goes and actually makes the priority decisions that, that Congress does not, uh, finds itself incapable of doing. Well, in the case of budget politics, the Congress has not devised that mechanism. They've devised a, a mechanism of irresponsibility. They've, they've delegated power away in a way that it really does constitute abdication. So the pre-commitment pre problem is, uh, the pre-commitment example of budget politics is a good uh, avenue into the question of when is delegation of power away from Congress, giving its power away, irresponsible? And, there's, uh, and, it, and it is in that in instance. Now my third and last example has to do with war. Uh, and this is also an interesting example because it seems to be a case, again, where Congress doesn't do what I said, but sometimes actually gets all worked up and starts telling the president what to do about war. And what I find interesting are, are, are such examples as the War Powers Resolution of 1974, um, in which Congress passes a framework statute that purports to tell the president how he's going to conduct future national security and 
war-making operations. Sets out rules for the president. <clears throat> now, as some of you know, the presidents <clears throat> since that resolution in 1974 have never followed it, um, and, and uh, nothing has ever happened uh, by virtue of that fact. No president, by the way, has conceded that the legislation was constitutional to begin with. And as I said, Congress does not act on the president uh, after, they, uh, after the presidents have failed to follow that uh, legislation. Why? Why does it work this way? My answer is that Congress, in passing this legislation, the War Powers Resolution, acts as if the law that they write, the War Powers Resolution, will do their job for them. When in fact, the reason they wrote the law was because they weren't doing their job, stepping up to the president, and they write the law, and the only way it's going to be enforced is if they step up to the president, but they think the law is going to do it for them. This problem actually goes, down, goes way back to the 1950s to a famous case that I, may have been mentioned last year when Joe spoke, uh, uh, called the Youngstown case, Youngstown uh, steel seizure case. Uh, President Truman seized the steel mills in the uh, Korean War um, to uh, intervene in a labor management dispute so as to keep steel um, uh, manufacturing available for his war effort. And that um, action of his was declared, um, was struck down by the Supreme Court of the United States and was throughout all of American history the strongest rebuke to a president that a Supreme Court has ever issued. And um, I think that uh, decision was wrong, but, and, and, and the, the reason I think it's wrong goes back not so much to all the legal arguments that surround the opinions in the decision, but to the facts that surrounded the, uh, the, um, the controversy to begin with. And so I just want to take two seconds to remind you of those. So there were a couple of laws on the books uh, having to do with labor management disputes, the Taft-Hartley law, and one having to do with military assistance. And under the military assistance law, um, um, Truman had had a cooling off period, a mediation period between the parties, between labor and management in this dispute. Uh, the mediators had come up with a proposal. Labor had accepted this proposal, and management refused to go along with it. Um, and hence, a strike uh, was, was uh, imminent. Um, when Truman intervened, he writes a letter to the Congress, in which letter he announces that the Secretary of Commerce is going to be taking this action, but he acknowledges up front that this is unusual, it's unprecedented, uh, it's, con it's justifiably controversial, uh, and that he has decided to do it for a series of reasons that he li lays out there. Uh, but he indicates that the Congress may disagree with those reasons, and if they do disagree with those reasons, he will follow what the Congress wants him to do. If the Congress wants him to do it a different way, he'll do it a different way. If the Congress doesn't want him to do it at all, he won't, he won't do it at all. Uh, <laughs> nothing happened. Congress doesn't respond. Fourteen days later, he writes the President pro tem of the Senate. I don't know if he got my letter 14 years ago, but he goes over it again, 
and uh, nothing happens. Um, at, at which point, uh, the court steps in at the behest of litigants on behalf of the companies who were, uh, who, uh, who were taken over. I don't think the court should have stepped in. Here we had an example in which the president himself invited the Congress to do its job. The president itself even said he would abide by the Congress's will if it disagreed with his own. Uh, and yet the court decided to do Congress's job for it, or what it took to be Congress's job for it. And that has had the corrosive effect of legalizing uh, in constitutional practice and in the minds of congressmen themselves what had previously been a political relationship. So that now congressmen routinely go to court for things that they had previously contested uh, presidents themselves uh, about. We even have a situation today, which some of you know, in which congressmen will be challenged on the floor of the Congress as to the constitutionality of legislation that they're proposing, and their answer will be, "Let I don't care, let the court decide. They will sometimes even put in clauses saying, well, uh, if the court decides this piece is no good, the rest stands, but we're not going to argue about whether the legislation is constitutional or not. Now, this entire mindset that I've tried to capture in these three examples is very, very different than the 19th century, and it's very, very different than what had been anticipated uh, in the Federalist, which I'm going to turn to now. At least it's very different with respect to the Congress. Interestingly, the reason why the presidency is not too strong is for the most part, presidents act as if, uh, as, as the Federalist and the Constitution had anticipated and had induced. That is to say, presidents stand up for their institutions. Presidents tend to stand up and push the boundaries of their own constitutional responsibilities. So I want to go back now for a few minutes and talk about the Federalist understanding of this agonistic relationship which is their understanding of what's often called separation of powers. So James Madison, reflecting back on that ratification debate, said to his colleagues uh, in the first Congress after the Constitution was established that no argument had been urged with more success than the charge that the Constitution violated separation of powers. Um, <clears throat> the anti-federalists said again and again uh, they, uh, they, they spat out their, this is quotations from them, their scorn for this spurious brat, this constitution, this bantling, this 13-horned monster, this heterogeneous phantom. What kind of government is this, asked pa Patrick Henry, because the constitution was not cognizable in familiar categories. There was no separation of powers there where the functions of the three major in uh, institutions of government presidency, executive, legislative, and judiciary were clearly defined and exclusively and clearly aligned with the appropriate institutions. The Constitution's complexity seemed to suggest that it rested on no theory at all to the anti-federalists because its terms seemed to violate the precepts of many of the most important and influential political theorists. So the difficult burden of the federalist was to respond to these charges that the Constitution really was a mess because it violated this principle of separation of powers. And they 
this was a difficult burden because the challenge was so true on its face. The Constitution did not perfect some known theory of governance, but instead invented one, a new one, unprecedented, hitherto unknown. But the Federalist does not initially admit this. It begins by arguing that the plan was just a better version of the familiar idea of separation of powers. Most readers uh, then and today miss this. Uh, and so most readers then and today, and so this is a little heads up for you guys that are gonna be reading the Federalist Papers, most people take the papers 47 to 51, which are the material on separation of powers, uh, as a constitutional theory, when in fact it's a kind of rhetorical wind-up, an introduction to the constitutional theory. The Federalist actually weds a very new idea to the old term separation of powers. It appropriates that old label for something very different. Now the Anti-Federalists point out that the Constitution assigns power all over the place. The Senate shares the treaty-making power with the executive. The executive held the qualified veto over legislation. The judiciary has power to nullify legislation. The legislature and executive and judicial powers are all commingled in the Constitution in these and other ways that they felt were contrary to political theory, such as the theory of Montesquieu. Uh, seizing on these facts, the Anti-Federalists pressed their case to reject the proposed design. They argued that the separation of powers principle was an essential one to protect liberty and that assigning powers cleanly to the appropriate institutions would also facilitate efficiency in government. They also were concerned that sharing power would generate too much conflict and that the complexity of the arrangement of shared powers would make government less understandable to ordinary citizens. As the modern-day political theorist Bernard Menen wrote, the Anti-Federalists unremittingly advocated precision and certainty in constitutional matters. They complained over and over again that the Constitution was incomprehensible and indefinite, vague, and inexplicit. Now, Madison responds to this with four arguments, three that are familiar, and I'll go over quickly, and one, the most important one that I think you may not have heard before. The first thing that the Federal says is, well, Montesquieu himself didn't adhere to this strict description, that even in Montesquieu, it's a little more complex. The second thing they said was, well, when we look at the experience of the states before the Constitution, the 13 states, there the principle also was not so strictly apl uh, applied. Uh, they canvassed every state uh, that was founded after separation of powers principle became an object of political attention and all of them mixed powers. Um, nevertheless, state constitutions were closer in form to the model recommended by the Anti-Federalists than the Constitution. They looked a little bit more that, like uh, uh, a clean separation. <clears throat> and so Madison actually, after praising the states for also being complex, attacks them for being insufficiently protective of the exercise of these institutional powers. And that's where this idea of checks and balances comes in, uh, that they need to share power in order to protect their principal power. Um, and why did Madison say that? He said because the mistake of the states and the mistake of the anti-federalists were to think that if you merely made a list of powers, it would be sufficient to protect them. 
I sometimes in class refer this to the nerd problem. Uh, and the nerd who is bullied at school goes out to the, he's out on the yard and he's getting beat up and so forth. And his answer is, it's not in the rules what you're doing to me. It's not in the rules, at which point he gets beat up even more. So if all you have is a list of who's supposed to do what and who's not supposed to do what, and you don't have a bully on your side, uh, you're in big trouble. So that was, uh, th those are familiar insights that Madison reports. Um, but the deepest problem, the deepest problem of, se of separation of powers, uh, and the one that's overlooked, is actually the difficulty of defining these powers, legislative, executive, and judicial, in the first place. Madison first says that discriminating in theory the several classes of power, as they may be in their nature, legislative, executive, or judiciary, is a principal task of a constitutional designer. But there is no account of the natures of power in the Federalist. Nowhere can you find any account of what, by nature, executive power is, or legislative or judicial. And just the opposite. You have Madison saying that, in fact, there is, no, there is no such thing, or it would be difficult to discover such thing. And let me quote Madison at some length on this point, because it's so important. When we pass from the works of nature, in which all the delineations are perfectly accurate, and appear to be otherwise only from the imperfection of the eye, which surveys them to the institutions of man, in which the obscurity arises as well from the object itself as from the organ by which it is contemplated, we must perceive the necessity of moderating still further our expectations and hopes for the efforts of human sagacity. Experience has instructed us that no skill in the science of government has yet been able to discriminate and define with sufficient certainty its three great provinces, the legislative, executive, and judiciary or even the privileges and powers of the different legislative branches. Questions daily occur in the course of practice which prove the obscurity which reigns in these subjects and which puzzle the greatest adepts in political science. So there seems to be a kind of objective indeterminacy to these powers, at least at, at their boundaries. And for that reason, separation of powers is not workable on its own terms. So Madison begins by saying to the anti-federalists, not, uh, yes, you're right, we're not going to do separation of powers. He begins by saying, no, we're doing it better. But better turns out to be something different. A new theory, a new theory of a governmental order, one in which the indeterminacy itself would be a virtue to exploit rather than a limitation to overcome. So Federalist 51 is both a conclusion and an introduction. It's a conclusion to the argument that separation of powers has previously understood is not workable, and it's an introduction to a new way of thinking about government, uh, which he did not label. He allowed to be called separation of powers still. But to be clear for you, I will say this new separation of powers could be called mixed democracy. What do I mean by mixed democracy? Well, some of you from your Courses on Aristotle will know the concept of the mixed regime, where you mix three different kinds of regimes in one. Ours is one kind of regime, a democracy, a form of democracy, and instead what is mixed are different desirable qualities of democracy uh, that are in tension with each other. So if popular will and consent 
uh, is in tension with rights, as it often is, as you know from your problems of majority tyranny. And if both of those could be in tension with the needs of providing national security, which are required for all regimes, democracies included, um, we might consider building a good democracy, Madison says, by institutionalizing a kind of uh, uh, concern with each of these attributes or desiderata of democracy, popular will, rights, and security. And we might be able to make popular will better by inducing an institution to deliberate about it, and we may be able to secure rights and national security by creating an institution that is energetic, and we may be able to protect rights with another institution that is designed to exercise judgment. Now, the idea here is not to rely so much on powers, but on a conjuries of structures and powers such that we create institutions that see the same political problems from different vantage points so that we could, if they're working, always be sure that the relevant arguments were made even before we knew what the debate was about because these institutions would be intentionally biased to bring up the arguments that they were designed to be partial to. Now this means that while these institutions would be equal, they would not be necessarily equal at any moment in time. Because if one institution was biased, for example, to the protection of security and the exercise of energy, it's going to have the kind of power uh, that, is, uh, that exceeds the powers of the other institutions at the beginning of a policy cycle or in the midst of a crisis. But in order for that to be justified as Democratic or Republican, small r Republican, it must be the case that the other institutions, and particularly the Congress, has more power after the fact, retrospectively, looking back at what the President has done. So these conjuries of powers and structures are induced to conflict with one another in a kind of dynamism or dynamic quality in which the President acts and the Congress reacts. Um, the idea is not only, however, that power will be safe by doing it this way, but that policy will be informed by competing perspectives. Um, now, let me just uh, give you a couple of quick examples of how this works, and then we'll be close to wrapping up. And so these are examples from the 19th century that contrast with the 20th century examples that I gave you. And they're just two. One of them is called the rhetoric of reply. Uh, I was going to read it, but I'm going to talk it because people are nodding off, so I'm waking you up a little bit here. Um, <clears throat> so the rhetoric apply is this. In the early administrations, the Washington and, and Adams administration, when the president gave the State of the Union address, the Congress uh, debated, the, he went home, he went back to the president's residence, and the Congress debated the address, sometimes for more than a week, uh, they appointed a committee to fashion a response to the president's address, which they debated, and they appointed a committee to, to go take the response to the president's house and read it to him. Uh, and he responded to the response. So you had presidential speech, response after deliberation in Congress, and then response to the response. This, by the way, was not some somebody from the party opposite giving 
a dumb speech from a state house in Louisiana or someplace. This was the Congress of the United States, maybe dominated by the other party, uh, just emerging the parties then, but having to attend to the arguments of both parties and fashion a document that represented the view of the Congress of the United States. So the, 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 the equivalent today, if we did something like this, is, yeah, you can have free TV time to respond to the president if you're the Speaker of the House speaking on behalf of the House or something like that. But the way we've set it up, as you know now, it's the President of the United States and somebody representing another party. The President, of course, has a partisan view, but he's not merely a partisan when he gives the State of the Union address. So that was an example of a kind of robust and interesting separation of powers. And by the way, I won't read you, but my example in detail was about the really important debates over foreign policy that were expressed this way during the Adams administration and how subtle and interesting the arguments were in this interchange. Um, the other example that I want to give you um, has to do with, uh, with uh, <clears throat> executive privilege, which some of you know is the president's ability to not give, in, to hold information secret uh, from the Congress, either for security reasons or to, prevent, to, to protect the confidentiality of advice giving in the executive office or for law enforcement purposes or, and so forth. And it conflicts with the power of Congress to uh, have information, to gain information necessary for its legitimate functions of lawmaking, oversight of the executive branch, and so forth. So these, executive privilege is an example in which presidential power and legislative responsibilities intentionally conflict, and the resolution uh, of any given case depends on the particulars of the fight between those two institutions. Now, in the 19th century, um, in 1846, Congress conducted an investigation of allegedly improper uses of money by former Secretary of State Daniel Webster. It was suspected he misspent money from a secret contingency fund for clandestine operations during the administration of John Tyler. The charges led the committee to issue subpoenas to former presidents John Quincy Adams and John T T Tyler. President Polk sent the House a list of the amount of, in the contingent fund for the relevant period, which was prior to his term, but he refused to furnish documentation of the uses that had been made of the expenditures on the grounds that a sitting president should not publicly reveal the confidences of his predecessors. President Polk's refusal to provide the information was mooted by the actions of two investigatory committees established by the House. Former President Tyler testified and former President Adams filed the deposition detailing the uses of the fund during their administrations. In addition, President Polk's own Secretary of State, James Buchanan, was subpoenaed and testified. Ultimately, Mr. Webster was found innocent of any wrongdoing. Now, you might contrast that, for example, to Dick Cheney refusing to give any information in the last administration. And so I was interested in, well, why did that happen? Why did the former presidents coming up, going to Congress, Secretary of State saying, yeah, I'll testify, um, despite the fact that it was against, in some ways, the institutional interests of the presidency? Where did this congressional assertiveness and ability to make good on it come from? What was different about the 19th century? 
The most salient difference was the practiced use of a resource no longer available or rather no longer used by Congress. In the 19th century, Congress employed a power of inherent contempt against uncooperative witnesses. That is to say, just as you can hold somebody in contempt of court for not doing what the judge wants, you can hold somebody in contempt of Congress. Now, you can still hold people in contempt of Congress today, but only by uh, holding them under, in criminal contempt and taking a case through the Justice Department, through the court systems. And they tried to do that in the last Bush administration and uh, against the Holder Justice Department in this administration. And in both cases, the Justice Departments say, we've got better things to do than to prosecute a case against our administration on behalf of the Congress. Well, in the 19th century, they used the inherent power of contempt in which the sergeant of arms would go and just arrest the person and put them in the jail downstairs in the Congress until they're ready to talk just the way Congress wanted them to talk. And, and they, they didn't have to do it very much. They just had to do it a few times. In fact, they did it not at all in the case that I just mentioned, but they had done it before that, and so they could have done it, and the possibility of doing it because it was a viable tool meant that Congress had something to back up its assertions of power. Um, as I said today, as a symptom of this congressional abdication, they rely on the very Justice Department that they sometimes are uh, in conflict with to prosecute on their behalf by taking it to court. Um, let me just say as a final remark, and then we'll have plenty of time for, for uh, questions, that, uh, that um, conflict induced under the auspices of a regime of deference is much different, and that's the kind of conflict that we have today, is much different than conflict legitimately induced and self-consciously nurtured. And deference elicited under a regime of political conflict, such as the example I just gave you in the 19th century, will likely be more responsible than modern abdications born of political amnesia. These were the theses I meant to advance by evidence of deference in our century and of conflict in the century past. Thank you. <laughs>